Our scripture reading for today is in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and it'll be verses 11 through 26. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 226. Again, that's 1 Samuel 2, verses 11 through 26. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor, with the Lord and also with men. Man. Amen. Thank you, Nolan. Appreciate that. Thank you, Jeff, for that, uh, that warm introduction. It could have been vastly more embarrassing than it was having spent two weeks with you. I won't tell any embarrassing stories about that, uh, but when you sleep with someone in the same room for two weeks, you get to know a little bit more about them. And uh, so just pray for, pray for his wife. Uh, pray for, he, he would tell you to pray for mine also. Uh, th thank you for joining us here today. Uh, I'm thankful for the privilege and honor to be with you in this place today. Now keep your Bibles open uh, and in front of you we'll, we'll continue to refer back to those as we move through the story. Well, I was thinking 
and praying through what I was going to speak with, uh, with you guys today, I came across an interesting article that I think uh, really makes a good point as it relates to the topic at hand and to this passage. In an article dated September 30th, 2015, the writer, a man by the name of Dmitry Kofinas, pens an autobiographical story about himself and his craniopharyngioma. So that's just a fancy word for a type of brain tumor. He was about 28 years old when this uh, diagnosis came down. And the doctors who were his caretakers at the time weren't absolutely sure what would happen if they let the tumor grow. And they weren't absolutely sure what would happen if he decided to do nothing. So the author writes, what eventually did happen was something none of the experts suggested would be possible. Over time, I would lose my memory almost completely of things that had just happened moments before and become unable to recall events that happened days or years earlier. These are super scary thoughts to be sure. Here's a young man in his late 20s, completely unable to remember anything. So along with a host of other symptoms came a dementia that he couldn't shake, which eventually led to a full-blown amnesia. But here's how he puts it in his own words. It was not long before my dementia turned into full-blown anterograde amnesia, characterized by what seemed outwardly to be an inability to form new memories. This put me in a perpetual state of forgetfulness that was undoubtedly the most debilitating of all my symptoms. I could no longer read. I kept getting lost in the words. I could not follow paragraph structure. Writing was frustrating and impossible. Words became unglued from their meanings. Concepts became less concrete. I was pretty sure, for example, that a giraffe was an animal with a long neck, but what was an animal? I couldn't be sure. So we've all heard stories like this of amnesia, either it be from brain cancer or uh, some sort of an accident. But I just wonder though, do we ever consider amnesia as it relates to our spiritual lives? Right, where you're hung up on the same sin or the same pattern as always, where you go through an entire day of busyness and realize when you lay your head on your pillow at night that any thoughts of God and how God might help you throughout the day are completely absent from your way of thinking. Right? Anybody but me experienced that. So I wanted to bring you to 1 Samuel today because I think there's no better place in Scripture that describes what we'll call spiritual amnesia today. The good thing about it, though, is that it doesn't just leave us there. It actually gives us the cure as well. And speaking of cure, we'll get back to, uh, we'll get back to Dimitri soon. So we'll jump in. Time won't completely allow us to go over the whole backstory of what just happened in 1 Samuel, but I'll give you the bird's eye view. Uh, we find that a woman by the name of Hannah prays to the Lord for a son. And she says, hey, if, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you in service to the Lord. So at the beginning of chapter 2, Hannah prays this beautiful prayer. Please go home and read that later, and, uh, and leaves her son Samuel with the high priest whose name is Eli in fulfillment of her oath. So look with me in verse 11. So it says, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So what we're going to find as we move along here is that there's sort of a contrast between these two families. You've got Samuel, and you've got Eli and his sons. So we'll meet Eli and his sons in verse 12. So take a look in verse 12 with me. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Well, what, is, what does worthless mean? And it means lacking value. So it means that these guys were useless, good-for-nothing men of ruin. So here we have Samuel, right, on the one hand. We have young, impressionable Samuel just got dropped off in the, in the service of the Lord under Eli's tutelage. 
And then we have the high priest's useless, worthless sons. And what a tragedy to be remembered for all eternity for being worthless and useless, having no value and having no worth. So if we're speaking about spiritual amnesia, this is where we see the first connection. Eli was the high priest. This would have meant years and years of rigorous devotion to the Lord just to get the opportunity to be in line for such an honor. And you would think that surely his children would have seen this devotion and followed suit, but they didn't. That's not what happened. How easily they forget the stories of Adam and Eve, of Noah, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Joseph, and Moses. These are all part of their heritage, and, and they either ignored them or just forgot them altogether. Now, if we were to read on into the next few verses, what we're going to find is that Eli's two sons are, are, are sort of over the priestly duties uh, of overseeing the sacrifices to the Lord. We won't get into all the gory details. You guys heard that when Nolan read it a second ago. Uh, but essentially what they were doing was taking wrongful advantage of the worshipers and demanding of them something that they didn't have the right to demand from them. And not only that, they were telling the worshipers, hey, if you don't give us what we're telling you to give, uh, we're going to use physical violence to get what we want. We're going to take it from you by force. Look, at me, look with me in verse 17. It says, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now contrast this with what Samuel is doing. Right, take a look at verse 18. We'll read through verse 21. So Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman, for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And here's what I wanted you to catch. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So we've got a stark contrast here between the two families. On the one hand, we've got a family who by all accounts should have known better by having been steeped all of their lives in this tradition uh, of the Israelites. And then you've got Samuel, who's constantly ministering before the Lord and recalling those same traditions. Think about the word constantly. It's a repeated, ongoing action of something that's happening. So let's look in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Eli kept hearing about his sons. Right? This is another repeated, ongoing action, another repeated behavior. So not only were they taking advantage of the worshipers in the temple, they were also sleeping with the women who hung out at the entrance uh, to the tent. So Eli's been repeatedly told about his sons, and yet he's done nothing. So now the next couple of verses records, like he does rebuke them, he does tell them, hey, that's, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. But at that point, it was too late. Verse 25 tells us, uh, they would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, the real shame here is that at the beginning of the passage, which Nolan read earlier, the Bible records that his sons did not know God. Now, this is really interesting considering they would have grown up around the priests. They would have understood that devotion and that respect that that position was to be given. The sad part, though, is that if you read what the Lord tells Samuel in chapter 3 in his initial conversation with Samuel, what you see is that Eli seems really complicit in all of these things. And I just wonder what the repeated action was that Eli took over and over in his life toward his sons. We may never know the answer to that question. 
but it does seem like his spiritual amnesia subsides towards the end when he rebukes his sons, but in God's eyes, it was too late. The damage had unfortunately already been done. But let's not forget about Samuel and all this. So read with me in verse 26. It says, Now the young man Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So again, we have ongoing, repeated action here. He continued to grow even amidst all of the corruption around him, he still continued to grow. Like he could have joined in with Eli and his sons, but he didn't. It was easier for Samuel to serve the Lord because he actually lived his faith moment by moment and was worshiping the whole time. And if I'm honest, I can see myself in Eli's sons a lot more often than I can see myself in Samuel. I'm, a, I'm probably the world's worst spiritual amnesiac, so when I think about the things that cause me to forget about Jesus and forget about my relationship with him, what do they look like? They often look like distraction or self-indulgence or even busyness. And I see some of those things in Eli's worthless sons. But if you'll, if you'll allow me a humorous illustration, I'll tell you what I mean about constantly forgetting about the Lord. So uh, Halloween, all right, I've got four kids. We get tons of Halloween candy. And when we're done trick-or-treating, all my kids go downstairs, they go into the basement, and they fill this entire, you know, section up here with candy on my basement floor. And so they start to trade and do all this kind of stuff. My one rule at Halloween, you may not eat candy before school. You can go downstairs, you can trade all you want, but don't eat any candy. So my two sons, Hudson and Sawyer, wake up early one morning, and they go downstairs, and they start trading their candy, and Sawyer pops a piece of candy in his mouth, and Hudson looks at him and he goes, Sawyer, don't do that. You're not supposed to do that. Sawyer looks at him and says, okay, well, I forgot. Okay. So 30 minutes later, we're all upstairs getting ready for school. Sawyer walks by me, pops a piece of candy in his mouth. I said, Sawyer, you're not supposed to eat candy in the morning. Hudson goes, well, Dad, I told him already. He already did that once. I said, okay. Sawyer looks at him. He looks at me. Well, I forgot again. Right? So that's a funny story, right? But we all do this. Right? We all do this to God. We all look at God and say, well, God, I forgot again when it's the same sin pattern or same thing that we do over and over and over again. Right? So what? So what, right? This is all well and good. We can all agree, like, yeah, I, I, I'm a spiritual amnesiac. Sometimes I forget about God. I forget about what God has done for me. But how do we move forward? What do we do about our spiritual amnesia? Right, it's, it's, it's remembering, right? It's remembering what God has done for us, right? What's the opposite of forgetting? It's remembering, right? And think about what Samuel was doing this whole time, right? He was remembering everything that God had done for him. And what's the best way to remember something? Well, that's, that's probably another story for another day, but think about what the Israelites did. Like, their history was an oral one, so they passed down the stories of their tradition and their history from generation to generation by telling them the stories of, of, of the generations before them. But how do we, how do, we do that today? Right? We don't necessarily live in an oral culture tradition today, so how do we do that? Well, one practical way, I think, if, if you don't write anything else down, please write this down, 
is that we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Now, that's a loaded question, or a loaded statement, right? What, what do I mean by that? Well, if you think about the idea of an oral history, it all starts with a story, right? And there's countless stories in the Bible that we could share with, with the people that are around us. They've been shared in various mediums throughout history. Go to the bookstore and look at the Christian section, right? You'll see hundreds of thousands of books telling all the stories in, throughout the Bible. But then I thought about it. Well, what's the greatest story? All right, what's the story above all other stories that we could tell ourselves every day to realign and recalibrate our lives and our spirits towards God. That's the story of the gospel. It's the story of how a holy God created mankind who rebelled against him and how God reconciled man to himself by sending his son as a sacrificial free gift to atone for the wickedness that man brought into the world. Now when I say the word gospel, what do I mean? Right, what, what, what comes to mind? My guess is that for a lot of us, if I said, hey, what, tell, tell me the gospel, what do you think about the gospel? I'd get some sort of answer, some form of, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that is awesome. There's nothing wrong with that answer. And if I just went around every single day telling myself that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I'd be in really good shape. But I want to take the 45 minutes that I have left. I want to make sure you guys are still awake. I want to paint a full, rich picture of the gospel. And my prayer is that this is a great reminder to you as you attempt to fight back the spiritual amnesia that comes upon us all. So the question that some of you might be asking, I even asked myself this question to begin with, was like, why isn't Jesus saves us from our sins the full gospel picture? Why can't, we just, why can't we just say that? Well, it doesn't take into account some of the fullness that I believe that we all need to really appreciate what God has done for us in Christ. When we see what Christ has done for us, it should ultimately lead us to worship him. So I want the full story so that I can worship Christ fully. I read a really good book on the the gospel a while back. That's by a gentleman by the name of Greg Gilbert. And he said these words in the book, and it's really transformed the way that I view the gospel. What he said is this. He said, an emaciated gospel leads to emaciated worship. An emaciated gospel leads to emaciated worship. So basically, if we have a less than full view of the scope of the gospel, our worship is just going to be a shadow of what it could be. Now, to really appreciate the gospel, we need to start all the way at the beginning. So yes, I mean Genesis 1.1. You all know the famous words, in the beginning, God. Right? So with the fourth word of the Bible, we get introduced to the author of this great story. Now, God is a personal God. What that means is that he loves you and he loves me very deeply and he's intimately acquainted with everything about us. So in Matthew 10, 30, even Jesus says that the very hairs of our head are numbered, right? My dad used to make a, make a joke. He used to say, hey, my hair is either gray. So my hair is either turning gray or turning loose, right? My, I, I feel him on that. Uh, so the very hairs of our head are numbered, right? And Jesus knows that number. God knows that number. He is intimately acquainted with us. Go home, write this down, read Psalm 139, and just allow those words to wash over you. And it's really interesting because after praising the Lord in the first few verses for his intimate knowledge of man, David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. So even David was sort of pre-Jesus preaching the gospel to himself. So don't forget, God is a personal God. You are known and you are deeply loved by the God of the universe. Now, most people want to jump straight from 
here at the beginning all the way to Jesus, and they miss all the beauty of what's, what's in between. So this is a story, right? We can't tell a story and tell the parts out of order, right? So we need to know what happened right after God created the universe. It'd be a lot like uh, meeting someone new and saying, uh, you know, hey, it's great to meet you. What do you do for a living? They say, hey, I'm a CEO. And you say, oh, awesome. Tell me that story. And they say, well, um, I was born on August the 23rd, 1982. And last May, I became CEO, right? If that happened, we'd be longing to hear the rest of the story, Hey, I want to know about your triumphs. I want to know about your failures. I want to know what, what happened in between when you were born and now to know how you did that. Everyone longs for a good story. That's why we all love to watch movies, right, and read books. So I mentioned that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day as a way to fight spiritual amnesia. But did you know that the word gospel literally means good news? So if I came up to you and I said, hey, uh, I got good news. What would you think in the back of your mind. There's, there's gotta be bad news, right? Or if somebody walked up to you and said, hey, uh, I've got good news and I got bad news. Which do you wanna hear first? What do we usually say? I want the bad news because I want the beauty of the good news to take the sting out of the bad news. And as far as the gospel story goes, uh, Paul David Tripp in his uh, Advent devotional had something really powerful to say about this. He said, Good news is only good news to people who know they need good news. So if, if Jesus dying for our sins is the good news, then you can look in Ephesians 2.12 and it gives us the bad news. Here's what it says. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We need to remember the bad news of who we are so that the good news of Jesus resonates with us. Our sinfulness brought on by our first parents, Adam and Eve, is bad news. So Jesus died, and that's true, but what did he die for? And why couldn't we do anything about it to secure our own salvation? So shortly after God creates the world and creates all living things, he breathes life into mankind. And after living with God for a short while, they rebelled against his only rule for them. This rebellion and disobedience to God is what we call sin. That's the first bit of bad news, that we are born sinful to the core of who we are. But within the rule that God set for them, there was a consequence. If they disobeyed, there would be a punishment, and that punishment would be death. So that's the second bit of bad news. First we have sin, now we've got death that has come on the scene. Right, because of our sinfulness, we're all spiritually dead. The death that they died was not a physical one, but a spiritual one. And because of that disobedience, everyone, and I don't just mean everyone in a trite sense, I mean everyone is born with a sin nature that leads us to disobey God. So keep those two pieces of bad news in mind, and we'll come back to them in a second. But because God is holy in his nature, and he can't dwell with sin, he casts them out of the place that he made for them. And as a sort of foreshadowing as to what would happen next, he gave them animal skins to dress in as he sent them out. But what must happen in order for there to be animal skins? There has to be death and bloodshed. But who made that first sacrifice? Because it wasn't Adam and Eve. It was God. Because as Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So the gospel that we preach 
to ourselves every day is first filled with bad news. Man rebelled, we rebelled, and God's presence leaves. And so this is where the sad part of the story continues. This is, this is all, all of those years, right, that rolled into decades, that rolled into centuries, and man's trying everything that they can do to atone for their own sinfulness. The Israelites, though, God's chosen people, were actually given instructions on how to atone for their sinfulness. It would be through a sacrificial system that had all these rigorous rules and demands. And once a year, the high priest of Israel was allowed to enter a special room called the Holy of Holies in order to atone for the sins of the entire nation. Yet, even that annual act was tainted by the sinfulness of the high priest who himself is a man just like the rest of the nation. So the years keep ticking by. And there's little hope that mankind would ever be welcomed back into the presence of a God who loved them far more than they would ever understand. Now, if we, if we left the story there, that'd be a sad story. A loving God, a personal God, the creator of the universe, who created mankind to be in fellowship with him, was rebelled against by the very creatures he desires to lavish himself upon. And that same mankind, by the way, can do nothing literally nothing to atone for their mistakes and live in communion with this God. Does anyone want to hear the good news? The good news is that if you look closely enough, there's this little thread that runs through the entire Old Testament about a Savior. One who would come to save mankind from their sinfulness and usher in God's kingdom. You see this in verses like Isaiah 9-6. For us, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or Second Samuel 7, he's talking to, uh, Nathan is talking to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it's interesting that even in the bad news, there's this little glimmer of good news. Okay, so what's the good news? The good news is that God literally stepped down into history as we know it in the form of a baby born of a virgin. It's the God-man who we call Jesus Christ. The good news is that Jesus lived a perfect sinless life here on earth. The good news is that we can now be forgiven of our sins through his death and stop trying to live up to a standard that we'll never be able to measure up to. I told you earlier that there's two pieces of bad news, right? The first bit of bad news that's got to be dealt with is the fact that we're sinful. We have no hope of being able to ever save ourselves from the punishment that comes along with our rebellion to God. And let me be really clear here. Being a good person will not save you. That's another, that's another sermon for another day, but on, the only thing that can save us from our sinfulness before a holy God is a sinless sacrifice. Now remember, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So how does Jesus deal with this sinfulness? Now remember, we talked about it earlier, uh, Jesus died for our sins. Let me say that again. Jesus died for our sins. Remember, that hits a little bit differently now when we remember that bad news. So Jesus' blood was shed 
on a Roman cross to be a substitute for the death that we deserved. And he died so that we might be given a way to be reconciled to God and be forgiven of the rebellion that we commit every single day. So what about the second bit of bad news, the, the, the bit about our spiritual death? So many of Jesus' enemies at the time, I would imagine as he's being pulled off of that cross, were rejoicing, saying, hey, we got rid of a threat, right? We got rid of a, we got rid of a problem. So his disciples, as we read, are sitting, huddled up in a room, scared, afraid, not knowing what to do, not knowing what would happen next, and not knowing what just happened right before that. So two of his disciples on the day of his resurrection go to the tomb where he's been buried, and they notice that the stone is rolled away, and an angel is sitting on top of that stone. And what do they say? What does the angel say? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. So I'd like to call on, on Greg Gilbert. I've already, I've already said something about him one time, but I think his explanation of why the resurrection is so important uh, is so valuable. I can't say it as eloquently as him, so here's what he says. He says, if Christ had remained dead like any other savior or teacher or prophet, his death would have meant nothing more than yours or mine. Death's waves would have closed over him just as they do over every other human life. Every claim he made would have sunk into nothingness and humanity would still be without hope of being saved from sin. But when breath entered his resurrected lungs again, when resurrection life electrified his glorified body, everything Jesus claimed was fully, finally, unquestionably, and irrevocably vindicated. That is good news. Right, we serve a risen Savior. We don't serve a dead one. And it was only through his resurrection that we could be raised to new life spiritually. So we've talked about repeated action a lot. When I said to preach the gospel to yourself, I also said preach the gospel to yourself every day. So as believers, we need to rehearse this story, right, every single day to ourselves and, and, and sometimes even moment by moment. If you look at Luke 9, 23, it, it asks us that we should take up our cross daily and follow him. And I truly think that if we were to rehearse this gospel story over and over to ourselves every day, uh, that's going to allow us and help us to give daily control of our lives to the Lord. So I hope at this point in time, we're, we're sort of getting a fuller picture of the gospel, but the real question is, how do we do this? Like, this is all great, but how do you preach the gospel to yourself? Well, take time to tell the story. Find time in your day to rehearse the gospel story. So, you know, some people will say, well, I'm so busy, you know, I don't have time for that. Well, let me challenge you on that a little bit. When you get in the car in the morning when you're on your way to work, turn the, turn the radio off. Turn the book on tape off, turn the podcast off, and just rehearse the story to yourself. All right, if you need help, memorize the Nicene Creed, memorize scripture, anything that you can do to help you. When you're, eat, when you're sitting at lunch eating your SpaghettiOs or whatever it is that you eat, Preach the gospel to yourself, right? Rehearse the story over and over again. And really, if I'm honest, I wouldn't be doing the gospel story justice if I didn't mention that we're still living in the story today. See, this story is not just for people who already believe in Jesus. It's especially for those who don't believe in him as Savior and as Lord. We're all, we're all a part of this story. And the invitation that Jesus extends to us even today is to come. Come 
as you are, come with your burdens, come with your shame, with your sin, come with your preconceived notions, with your doubts and frustrations, but no matter what you do, just come. Just come. Jesus invites all of us to come and find rest in him and to come and find salvation in him. The Bible uh, in Acts 4.12 says that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the other good news is that those of us who believe in Jesus have been given the Holy Spirit as a helper. Right? God's presence now lives inside us. The same presence that Israel longed for all of those years is now ours in Jesus. The same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is now ours that can help us in daily living. I love Ephesians 1, 13. It says, in him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. But there's one more thing. The final story hasn't been written yet. The story's not quite over. See, all throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites, God's chosen people, longed for a Savior who would come and rescue them from their oppressors. But what God sent them was a lowly carpenter from Nazareth. Now remember the risen Savior we talked about earlier. Guess what? He's coming back. And this time, he's coming as the conquering hero. He's coming to rid the world of sin and death once and for all. He's coming to usher in a new kingdom where sin and death no longer reign. He's coming to gather his people once and for all. He's coming to make all things new. And that day will be glorious. The rest of the story... All those who believe in Jesus will live with God forever and ever. And what a day that will be. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Are you still going to have spiritual amnesia? Yeah. And probably more often than you want. But when it does, remember the story. Remember what Jesus has done to secure your salvation. Preach the gospel to yourself and remember the story. So speaking of stories, whatever happened with Dimitri? Well, they operated on his tumor, and guess what? It turns out his brain was cataloging memories the whole time, even though he didn't know it. So once he was out of surgery, all these memories come flooding back to him. Here's what he writes. I want to leave you guys with this. Uh, here's what he writes as to, as to what, he, what he felt when he was able to think and reason clearly. He says, when trying to convey to others my feelings of joy, and excitement, I would ask them to remember what a summer day felt like when they were children. Do you remember how big the day felt? You had an entire day ahead of you. The appreciation for life, coupled with my reacquired clarity and focus, made the days feel just as long and adventurous. By the time night would come, I'd feel like I had traveled the world and that a new adventure was just around the corner with the rise of every new day. Here's what I wanted you to hear. There was meaning and beauty behind everything. And I was filled with gratitude for the privilege of being present to experience it, all of it. My prayer for you all 
is that as you preach the gospel to yourself every day, that you would realize and that God would show you the beauty and the meaning behind everything, and that you would be filled with gratitude for the privilege of being present to experience all 